This episode is sponsored by A-List. A-List is an innovative educational services provider made up of passionate educators dedicated to helping students from all backgrounds achieve their academic goals and successfully prepare for their educational futures. From standardized test prep for the SAT and ACT to professional development, data analytics, and AI learning platforms, A-List annually serves more than 80,000 students across the U.S. and via its international offices in London, Dubai, and Shanghai. Now, I happen to know one of the founders, and he is exceptionally passionate about education and building a brighter future for the students he works with. And I think this ethos has permeated the entire corporation. Check out their website at alisteducation.com. On this episode, we have Jason Boog. Jason fed a passion for writing at a young age and always sensed it would be his calling. He has incorporated it in all facets of his life, including during a two-year stint in the Peace Corps. Jason studied journalism in college and pursued a master's degree from NYU, where he also taught while working for a number of different media outlets. He relocated to Los Angeles and recently released the book The Deep End, a 10-year passion project that shares how writers survived during the Great Depression, lessons which feel very relevant to the pandemic of today. Jason, thank you so much for being on our show. Hi, it's great to be here, and thank you for having me. It's it's so cool to have a conversation about this book with someone who's uh, read it all the way through and just loves to talk about books as much as I do. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I've really been looking forward to this conversation as well um, because um, we we share that love of, of literature and, uh, and and fascination with books and writers, and so uh, this is going to be a real treat. So, Jason, um, let's go back to the beginning. Um, you were born in Michigan. Were you born in Lansing? Uh, yeah, I was born at a hospital in Lansing, but I grew up in rural Michigan, a, a town called Lyons, Michigan. Uh, I don't know, a population like 600, something like that. We lived on a dirt road, um, what used to be a farm. My parents weren't farmers, but we lived in a country and uh, yeah, quiet little town in Michigan. Yeah. Do you, and do you have siblings? Yeah, uh, we come from um, uh, a, a large German Catholic family. Uh, German, uh, so yeah, I have uh, three brothers and uh, one sister, and I'm the oldest. And everybody's back home in Michigan. Wow! So you are the only one to uh, to leave, uh, come to California, mm-hmm. to New York, which we'll yeah. get into. Um, and so, uh, uh, were your parents writers or in the arts? No, no, my parents, uh, my parents had, uh, had a large bookshelf and uh, they always read to me and always encouraged me to read. So I think that's where it all started. Uh, But no, my mom was a was a nurse and my dad was a computer programmer, but they both loved to read. So I just kind of grew up, there were always books around. And as soon as I could read them myself, I was reading. So read my way through that bookshelf, moved on to the Lions Public Library and kind of went from there. Whom uh, were you most drawn to while you were growing up in like high school? Who were you reading then? Oh, geez, that's a great question. In high school, I, I loved um, the beatniks, uh, the poets from the 1950s who uh, wore white t-shirts and uh, rolled up their sleeves and sat in coffee houses reading reading their work. I loved them. And so I, I read a lot of, uh, uh, let's see, Allen Ginsberg, um, Gregory Corso, and, and a lot of those poets. And uh, I would spend a lot of time at poetry readings when I was younger, too. I, I loved I loved hanging out and uh, doing spoken word and things like that. 
So uh, poetry was your favorite art form to read? Uh, I don't think it was my favorite form. I, I read a lot of novels too, but um, I, I, I think I fancied myself a little bit of a poet back then. I have since uh, given up that little corner of my life. I still read a lot of poetry, but uh, yeah. So back then I was reading and writing. It, spoken word, it's a, it's a really interesting kind of combination of spoken text and uh, poetry. So um, a lot of free verse and, and that kind of morphed into storytelling for me. I think that was always what it was. It was it was being in a room with a small group of people and telling a story. That's the core of what I love since high school. And um, uh, I think poetry was the first way I discovered that, but that kind of morphed into more of a, a urge to tell stories. That's really great. I appreciate that. And that's actually a perfect segue. Um, <laughs> when was the first time you picked up the pen or started banging on the keyboard to put out your own work, an original piece by Jason? Yeah, I, I can actually, uh, so the first private piece I ever wrote, my my godmother gave me for my, and when I was in second grade, she gave me my first diary. It was a felt covered journal, still have it. Um, and when my daughter was in second grade, I was able to read it with her. And so yeah, that was the first time I ever put pen to paper and kind of recorded my words. And I never looked back. I have kept a journal ever since, I, I think that was second grade. And uh, so I've kept a journal ever since then. And uh, so that's, that's always been a big part of my life. And then um, the first published piece I ever had, I think was fourth grade. Uh, so, ah. <laughs> so I grew up, uh, most, most of my family came over from Germany um, around 1850, or 1890s. Uh, they were and they all lived in these farming villages and very strong Catholic community that I grew up in. So my family, um, so we, we had a lot, we went to church and things like that, but we also had a, a Catholic magazine called My Friend, and uh, they had a junior reporter program, it was called, and uh, I signed up for that, and I wrote an article about sneakers for this little Catholic children's magazine, and I, that was my first published piece, and I was so proud of that, and I, I think that's when that bug hit me. Well, rightfully so. That's fantastic. Well done. And I love how it's just self-initiated. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, so it, it just kind of, uh, there's something about, I mean, I, I, there still are kids magazines, but I don't think magazines are such a big part of kids' lives anymore that it used to when I was around because there, there was no, there's no internet, there's nothing else. It was just those magazines. So I, I would read those and uh, it was such a proud moment to see that in, in the magazine. Yeah, no, for sure. Well done. That's great. Very entrepreneurial of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, for college, you uh, found your way to Ann Arbor at uh, University of Michigan. And yeah. Did you want to specifically stay within the state? Um, no, no, at the time. I mean, uh, we, we were, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of I was, it was a big family there. I, I, the state school was, so I went to, went to community college for two years first, oh. um, uh, just to kind of keep costs down, um, uh, at the time. And, uh, and that turned out to be a really good move because, uh, I, I don't think I, mean, I grew up in a small town. I don't think I would have been quite ready for the big scene, the big cultural scene that I encountered at university of Michigan. So, uh, so for the first two years, I was at Lansing Community College, which changed everything for me. Like I was able to work on the school newspaper there and uh, I took a lot of writing classes. And at the time, I, I never saw writing as, as, a, as a viable career. And when I was in community college, I kind of found like a little community there. I was able to continue the spoken word and the 
storytelling stuff. And so it, it just became, I, I realized that I wanted to try harder to, to make that my, uh, uh, more of my work. So after being there for two years, I was able to transfer to the University of Michigan where I was an English major. And uh, I really feel like that, that stepping stone of community college really helped me. And uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So it was really that uh, community college experience where you decided or made, uh, uh, was it, uh, well, let me ask a question. Was it at that point where you felt like, okay, journalism is what I'm gonna gravitate towards? Um, I didn't, I, it wasn't even journalism at the time. I mean, I was working in the school newspaper and, and doing the reporting, but I, I, I just knew I wanted to be a writer. And okay. uh, I, I wasn't able to really <laughs> articulate it very well or even think about it. It's a nebulous career anyways, uh, especially <laughs> these days. But uh, yeah, but yeah, at the time, I just I knew that I liked doing this work and I was happiest when I was writing things down and I wanted to figure out a way to keep doing that. So. Nice. No, that's great. Um, so after college, you joined the Peace Corps. Yep, <laughs> that, that may have been a little bit of that nebulous too. I mean, I, I, I knew I didn't want to go on to a graduate program. I, I wasn't ready to go on to school, uh, to, to more schooling at the time. Uh, I was looking for something to do. Uh, I was a poor college kid. I didn't really have uh, the funds to go travel the world or anything. And the Peace Corps was seemed like a really cool opportunity at the time it seemed like a cool opportunity because I did I, I felt this urge to travel but also to serve a little bit um, and uh, I, I don't even think at the time I was able to kind of imagine what two years meant it, it was such a it, it was a it was a commitment that I made uh, I probably didn't realize how big it was but it was one of the greatest decisions I ever made um, uh, so yeah so I, I was fortunate enough to get into Peace Corps, uh, and uh, I ended up in Guatemala. And I was there for two years, living on top of a mountain uh, in eastern Guatemala uh, with uh, some of the, the, the most wonderful people I've ever met. Um, working in these very uh, these very poor uh, rural communities, and um, yeah, I, I learned a lot there, and I grew up a lot. Like I, I don't, uh, I, that's really where I started to see that. Uh, there was more to just, there was more to life than just the little circle that I grew up in. I realized my own privilege, how, how, how much privilege I had grown up with as a middle-class white person um, in America. It, it, it was astounding to see the difference of the way people would live in the world. Um, so I became aware of that. And then it also, I think, sharpened my, uh, my storytelling to be more sensitive to the things around me and, and, and to start telling the stories to the people around me, um, which was a really important step towards journalism. And, uh, so well, yeah, it was a great experience. So did you do some of that uh, sort of documenting the stories of the people around you? Yeah, yeah. I well, um, I, I wrote, I filled up six notebooks while I was out there, and those oh. notebooks I keep in a little plastic container. I, I carry them. I, I protect those with my life, like those stories, and and most of them will, most of that will never get published. But it was those were some of the most important stories I think I ever collected. It was just to see what was going on around me, and um, yeah, it was just a really great experience, and and and. I, it's uh, it, it's hard to imagine because it was right at the moment that the internet and email and social networking was taking off, but it wasn't entrenched yet. So I kind of lived this monastic life 
in Peace Corps that I, I don't think any other Peace Corps volunteers now would be able to, I don't think anyone would experience that anymore because uh, you're so connected now. But I was, I, my main connection with the outside world was a beeper that, <laughs> that, that Peace Corps gave me that would give me alerts if there was some emergency. Uh, and that was it. Um, people were starting to get cell phones. I, I didn't have enough money for a cell phone, so I didn't have a cell phone. I would have to use someone else's cell phone to call home and things like that. So it was, I was really, it, it was a very monastic lifestyle. I read a ton of books, did a lot of writing, and uh, uh, I'm really grateful for that experience. And I don't think you could replicate that anymore. Uh, it, it was a very unique moment in time. Now that's really phenomenal. And I love that when you've been, uh sort of stripped of all other stimulation yeah. your impulse was to interview people and yeah. hear their stories and uh and write write about it that's really amazing mm -hmm. um is there a story that you can share with us from that period that really stands out and has stayed with you yeah uh there were a lot but i, I think probably um the one that i remember most vividly is so down the road um, there, there was a family that, that I knew pretty well. They had a couple kids and, uh, we would interact. I mean, everybody knew me. It was a very small village. And one day one of the kids came over and they said, we need you to translate. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. And they're like, uh, there's some people coming from America. And, um, so it was, uh, it was a family from Ohio and they had adopted one of the children uh, in the family that lived in the village. So what had happened many years before, uh, the, their daughter had um, spilled a, a pot of, of something hot on her arm and had burns on her arms that, that required skin grafts. And it was a level of medical care that she could not receive in Guatemala, or at least that part of Guatemala. So she became part of um, a medical program that she could be adopted into this other family in Ohio that could help her get the treatment she needed. And it was it would require screen grafts uh, for the, the, the course of her growing life. So she lived in Ohio with this family. And it was the most surreal experience to have someone who grew up right where I did yeah. and be talking to this family that spoke my language in, in Guatemala, in, in this place where I had been for now a year and a half, I think. And we were just talking about what life was like back in the United States. And I, all of those differences that we talked about, like the, my privilege as, yeah. as a white person, as an American, as someone growing up in the middle class, like all of that came just flooding back. And I could see the contrast uh, as we were talking about that. And I met this girl who she was with her 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 birth family and and seeing these people that that I mean she grew up she was born in this family she was born in this world and and she was coming back and and you could see how how uh, I mean it, it, she was happy to see her family and and you could but you could also see um, just what an overwhelming experience that would be for a young kid to be back in this world that you sort of remember, you sort of don't. And, um, so it was just, it was just a, a really interesting afternoon. Uh, we got to walk around the village and talk and, and it was, it, I, I will never forget that afternoon. And after it was all over and after the family had headed back to their hotel and it was done, I was talking to one of the children, one of the older children who lived in the village. And, and I said, you must, she must be so sad to be leaving you. It must be so hard for her to go home and, and to leave you right now. And the, and the kid said, she said, no, she's, the, she's the lucky one. And, uh, that I still have been wrestling with that sentence 
for many years later, like who is the lucky one and, and what does that mean? And, and it just illustrates how out of proportion the, 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 the world is at this moment in history. And it, it yeah, it, it's always stuck with me and uh, who is the lucky one and, and what does that mean? And, and, uh, and I, it, it's made me aware of, of how lucky I am. And it makes me think about that situation. Yeah. I've thought about that for many years. You know, it's interesting. Um, when I talk to people who have done similar experiences, there's always a reflection on the sense of community they had in their host countries. Mm -hmm. um, it almost makes me wonder, do we, do we not have that here uh, significantly enough? Or, or you know, is it sort of a contrast that uh, people are, are, are relishing? Um, so I don't know, maybe it's a cultural thing where other uh, societies, maybe because there aren't as many resources in order to occupy their lives with material things, they focus on relationships and friendships and, and fostering community. And so that sense of uh, just being a part of something is, uh, is more profound. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm sort of uh, surmising. Uh, it's a, just really a, a reflection because uh, <laughs> yours is a, a, another example, another data point to support that idea. Yeah. No. It it it, um, it, it was a very special community. Um, so you came back stateside, and then you, do you head directly to uh, NYU to study journalism? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. So I I thought right before I was leaving Peace Corps, I. Uh, I, I, I thought I was going to be kind of a short story writer, or a fiction writer, and uh, I, I got really obsessed with applying to um, like a creative writing MFA programs, and so I worked on crafting these these short stories and things that I could send to uh, that I could send to those places to apply. Spent a long time on that work and um, got almost ready to send it, and I realized that. I wasn't ready. Like uh, the work wasn't ready. And I, 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 I remember coming to this decision that I don't think I'm going to get into this program. Like, I don't think my, my fiction writing is there yet. Um, but I had been doing all this other writing about the stories around me, about the world I saw. And I had written a few things that I had shared with other people in kind of a storytelling setting in Peace Corps. And it had been received really well. And so I decided kind of at the last minute that maybe I shouldn't try for this creative writing, maybe I should try journalism. So I applied to uh, journalism school and I did get into there. And uh, I, I think I think that was one of the more sound life decisions I've ever made. It was just to, I, I really weighed what my writing strengths were and and journalism was definitely the better, the where, where my strengths lie lay at the time so yeah so I got into New York University and uh, I was home for a few months uh, back in Michigan uh, living with my parents in our small little village and then I took off for New York City uh, at the end of the summer it was a it was a pretty whirlwind couple months <laughs> yeah absolutely um, well that's that's fantastic and uh, while you were at NYU you interned at uh, Condé Nast and uh, was it after you finished your degree or during that you launched the publishing spot blog? 
Whoa, that's a that's a great question. I haven't thought about the publishing spot in a long time. Yeah, it was right after I graduated. So when I was in journalism school, these things called blogs were starting to get published and you could see, and, and that was all I was interested in. And, and our teachers didn't really have that much intelligence about it. Um, they brought in a few writers who, who were working in that space. So I, I learned as much as I could, um, but, but yeah, the, the, I could see that there was a lot of opportunity there. Um, so I had written a few pieces about the publishing industry and things like that. And then this very small business blog network contacted me and said, Hey, uh, we're looking for someone to start a blog about this vertical. Do you want to do it? And, uh, I, I had never done it before, but I said, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, so I embarked on, uh, I don't know, a year or two journey of kind of starting something from scratch for the first time and, and figuring it all out. And, uh, I made a lot of really good friends along the way. I learned a lot about how to write for the internet, but um, also, uh, yeah, I made my earliest contacts uh, in the publishing world um, uh, through that experience as well. Very nice, that's awesome. Um, and then when you came out, uh, when you finished school, did you um, move right into teaching? Because you were a professor there oh. as well. Yeah, so uh, I, I was writing for a while, uh, and then, uh, so yeah, I was, uh, I, I came out of uh, school, I worked uh, at the publishing spot, I did some work at Media Bistro, uh, and part ways through that experience, NYU was looking for adjuncts to help uh, teach some of their introductory journalism classes, and uh, I did a lot of teaching through my work in Peace Corps, so I always knew I liked it, and I I appreciated it, so I I jumped in. Um, so I just jumped in, and uh, that was a lot of fun because it was uh, it was these young students who also saw this whole new world and need and wanted to see how to navigate it, and uh, I was able to show them in real time my struggles and and my successes like i would come in and be like here's something that happened at media bistro yesterday someone wrote me and said that i had put the wrong number here and i had to do a correction and this is how i did it and this is how i emailed them like i would solve a problem in real time in front of them and that was a that was a really cool experience and uh i miss teaching i wish i could go back is there no scope at uh, ucla or usc <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's it's also a time thing. I, I was a much younger man with no kids at the time. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, and, and tell us about journalism ethics. I saw that you taught that. Yeah, well. yeah. That that was a that was a fascinating class. We uh, we we were um, teaching. Um, so we we would every uh, every every New York University student, journalism student, had to take this introduction to journalism class, or uh, introduction to journalism ethics class, and uh, it would go through a whole gamut of things, uh, like we would, like we had a unit where we talked about the Pentagon Papers, and how those journalists uh, lawyered up, and, and how they navigated the very tricky uh, uh, process of going through a big stack of documents that had been yanked out of I think the Rand Corporation and, and how to handle that so we went from something like that to uh, to the ethics of uh, plagiarism uh, how plagiarists get caught um, and then uh, also at the time there was a lot of uh, people fabricating things 
and that was going that was in the news a lot so we talked about uh both why it happens and and how to spot it if it's happening around you and um how to make sure that you never make those same mistakes um and uh and we were it it was interesting because we were teaching ethics at this time when i I feel like the the journalism world was changing so quickly that uh it was almost like uh we had to come up with not, not new ethics but ethics had to catch up with with all of these changes that were happening uh, in in the space, and I, I still feel like journalism is coping with that problem and, and how to fix that. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, remedy. I just remember hearing or, or through time there was that one New York Times reporter who claimed he was at a location when he actually never was, and when that got found out, he was let mm-hmm. go. It was a big big to do. I forgot the fellow's name. Um, uh, Jason Blair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. And there were other journalists who invented whole characters that didn't exist. And uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, it, it's a little harder to get away with things like that now. Uh, I, I think that's one good thing about the internet. It's very easy to research and figure out if someone's real or not uh, in a way that it wasn't back in 2000 four or five when they caught those people but. yeah and then there was a movie that was done about another fellow at uh, the atlantic i think uh yeah that that was the new republic that was uh was stephen it? glass the yeah. uh shattered glass great movie yeah. yeah yeah that was fun uh built a lot of drama for sure um you did a lot of um was it was it with Media Bistro where you're doing a lot of interviews of, of mm-hmm. authors and uh, dignitaries? Yeah, yeah. Media Bistro was a really wonderful place. Um, it's uh, it's still around. It got absorbed into uh, Ad Age now, but um, but at the time it was uh, it was this scrappy, brand new internet um, organization that was really trying to create community for young new media journalists and uh so I, it was fun because i needed that community and and it felt really good to have these new people around me people going through the same things i was and then we were writing content for those people so that would be anything from an interview with uh, a great journalist like susan orlean and asking her really practical questions that that the young journalists in the audience could take away it was things like that but then it would also be uh like uh i had the great opportunity to to talk to places like um like wattpad uh or patreon or just the 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 tech platforms that these new people were these people were interacting with and i could find out really actionable practical things that they could use to do those so it was this really interesting uh uh, meeting point between those two worlds and got to do lots of great interviews and um, just wrote a lot of different stories. Um, so for, for Media Bistro, that was focused on just kind of the general new media journalist and, and people in that world. And it could include everything from marketing to publicity, things like that. Um, and then I also led the Galley Cat blog, which was focused directly on the publishing industry. And that's where uh, a lot of my publishing reporting began, was right there. Um, at one point uh, when we were chatting, I asked you what's uh, the most impactful interview or your favorite interview you've had, uh, you've done in the past. And you um, talked about uh, Salman Rushdie. Yeah, yeah, Solomon Rusty. It was uh, that was uh, it was just a really uh, off 
off the cuff moment that I had, I was at a, I was at some literary party and, and there he was. And, and I just decided to go up and, and say hello and, and uh, talk to him briefly. And uh, he ended up uh, kind of just talking to me for a little bit and, and telling some funny stories and it was great. Um, and, uh, and that also makes me think, uh, those kind of accidental interviews are so they're, they're great I love them and, and they don't happen very often um, but uh, there was another moment uh, around that same time when I was at a, a literary thing and Christopher Hitchens the, uh, the great journalist uh, who passed away a few years ago he was there wow and I just did the same thing and approached him and uh, just like Rusty, I asked uh, a question that was kind of from my own life and I said like what it was it was around 2008 so things were kind of getting dicey and the job market was getting really hard and I asked Christopher Hitchens what he thought what what was uh what if he ever lost a job and what was that like and was he worried about losing and uh he said he told this story about how he got fired from one of his first jobs and uh he said it was the best thing that ever happened to him because it put him on this path to kind of go and explore his own things. And, and that's how he ended up where he was. And I, I can't, he was a very eloquent man and I can't articulate that story quite as well as, uh, um, as, as well as he did at the time. But I put that up on YouTube and it's a very short clip. And uh, it to this day is the most viral piece of uh, interview content that I've ever created. And uh, people still write in and, and say that was such a great moment with with Christopher Hitchens and it, it's so cool that that's still there uh I don't know probably 10 years later that's amazing well done <laughs> yeah that's yeah it was really just great. a funny serendipitous moment yeah well I know that uh 2008 uh was uh, a transition moment to sort of the the great recession and how it impacted you um I want to get into that in a little bit as we talk about book that is about to be released on Tuesday, The Deep mm -hmm. End, because I, I see it all sort of sews together. Um, in uh, 2014, I believe, and now I see the genesis of this, you published a book called Born Reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I just when you shared about uh, going through your parents' uh, bookshelves and devouring the works yeah. there, I see now that you're kind of um, bringing that, that to uh, to your children. And uh, it's fun to tell us about what that book is. Yeah. So uh, my daughter was born in 2010, and uh, that was a big shakeup in my life. It, it was good. It changed everything. And uh, after about, I mean, by the time she was one year old, I, I, I knew, I remembered what it was like to have books in my house and I had books in our house and I wanted to share them with her. So I just started, I mean, even before she was one, I just started reading these board books to her. I mean, she couldn't, she couldn't understand. I didn't quite know what was going on. I was just kind of feeling my way through it. But I don't know, when she was about one years old, I said, I wonder what's actually going on. I wonder if it's, if it's valuable or not to be reading this book to her. I started just kind of reaching out to a few people to get interviews about that. And I discovered that if you are reading to a child before two years, before two years old, uh, there's actually a huge number of neural connections that are being made and you can really change a child's 
uh, brain uh, by, by reading to them because you're feeding them uh, hundreds and hundreds of new words. And each one of those words is helping carve these new neural pathways. And uh, a, the growing child from like, I don't know, from zero to six, lots of new pathways are being made. But you and I, now that we're older, uh, when we learn something new, we're using those old pathways. We're not making those new ones. So you're, you're basically helping architect your child's brain a little bit. And um, you can just make some really important developments in your child. And, and the more words, the more reading that they have, even from that very, very young age before they can read themselves, really important. So uh, that kind of blew my mind. And I just kept, so I pitched a book about it. And uh, yeah, and Simon and Schuster picked it up. It, it, was, a, it was a really uh, heady experience. So I just kept interviewing more experts about that and just tried to make the most practical book I could for parents to say, here is from zero to six, the, the best, the, the, some best practices for making sure your kid's reading a lot and, and, and is born reading. And uh, it's, it's been really cool. And, and to see my children grow up uh, has been really amazing. And you can see year after year, how their vocabulary changes and how that love of reading can, if you just plant that seed very early, how it can keep going. Um, and it just becomes, it books become a part of their lives and it's really special. Oh, that's fantastic. Well done on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a really fun writing experience. And, and I, I do want to stress, I am not an expert at all uh, any more than I'm a, an economist or something like that. I, I'm not an expert, but I, I love interviewing people who have, uh the experience to kind of tell me what to do and what this means and uh i learned a lot from a number of different experts in that book oh, that's great kudos on that um mm -hmm. yeah uh my kids were born in 06 and 08 and uh, i just mm -hmm. naturally um did that to uh, a fair degree uh thankfully um yeah. <laughs> i also played a lot of music for them even when they were in the in the womb uh played opera for them yeah no it's funny because the i actually uh because i i will talk to my my son's now uh, almost five years old and i will talk to him about books that he read voraciously when he was like two years old and it's just wiped you you hit this moment in your life when uh your brain kind of wipes away some of those very earliest experiences it's a little sad but um, you, you have to trust that that architecture is there underneath. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you made the move out to LA uh, mm -hmm. and uh, started working with True Pictures. What brought you to LA? Uh, my wife grew up out here and uh, so she had family. We wanted to be closer to family. Um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, New York City, I think, is probably where the most uh, writing work is. That's where the, the the most concentrated community of like journalists and writers is. Right. So it was good to be there, but it was getting too expensive. And uh, and yeah, and we it, when you have kids, if you can be closer to family, it helps. So yes, yeah, so we made that move uh, to be there. Um, and um, yeah, so yeah, so I I, I found work with a production company it was it was a wonderful time it was uh they they wanted someone to kind of work with the screenwriters and the and the different creatives uh to give them the research that they needed and also help them find books and new ip to explore so I, every day was something new i would be 
finding new books, reading books, uh, explaining esoteric ideas to screenwriters and to people. It, it was a lot of fun, a lot of report writing. And I also got to start the blog and, and, and kind of the online outreach for the company as well. So it, it, was, a, it was a really fun time. And kind of gave me a peek into an industry that, I, yeah, I, I don't ever see myself being a screenwriter, but it was a really interesting, it was cool to peek under the hood and learn how these those things work a little bit more. That's great. No, that's excellent. Um, I know that you still you do work with uh, Publishers Weekly. Um, so yeah, so Publishers Weekly. Uh, I, I had uh, I had worked for Media Bistro. Uh, I had kept writing some freelance pieces for Media Bistro and things like that. I always wanted to keep that freelance publishing writing going. And uh, when Publishers Weekly was looking for a West Coast correspondent, I reached out. And uh, yeah, and they, they took me on. So it was, uh, it was a really cool opportunity because it's a, it was a, it, it's a, it's a, it was a part-time opportunity that I could kind of keep running in the background while I was working on these other jobs. But um, yeah, it, it kept me plugged into the publishing industry and I could, and I, yeah, every week I work on a new story about uh, an interesting thing that someone in the publishing world is doing. Um, uh, like for instance, uh, this week I'm working on a really interesting piece about uh, a woman right here in Los Angeles, who's a who's she's she's a Los Angeles entrepreneur. She had written uh, her father had died when she was very young, and she had written a children's book about uh, grief and dealing with grief. Right. Um, and uh, it was it was a great book. And uh, while she was writing that, she saw just the huge need for uh, children who, who are grieving to connect with each other and to connect with counselors, especially at this moment where you can't leave the house as much. And uh, so she's going to be a little later this month uh, releasing a, a social network called Guardian Lane, where kids can get free video uh, projects and uh, kind of counseling from from grief counselors, and then also uh, discover these books and share um, their thoughts with other kids. And uh, it's, I just love that I can be, you know, I, I can discover things like that, write about them and, and, and kind of share that with the world. No, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she, uh, Christina Jones is the author of uh, the book, um, uh, and the the founder of Guardian Lane, and and she works with grief counselors, uh, who help write these books and consult on them, and and they said that over and over again, like how kids, it it's a long process, and um, and and it's easy to feel isolated, and um, and if you can give, there's creative. Uh, outlets that they'll suggest and give these kids projects that they can work on and uh i'm, I'm really interested to see how that works and, and it, it just must be such a bewildering time to be a kid right now and uh and uh, and, and to also lose someone you love it, it has to be really really confusing and hard no absolutely um and thanks for for sharing about that so mm -hmm. now i'd love to focus on um your book uh, which mm -hmm. is called the deep end and um 
I, I, when I first started uh, reading it or heard about it, of course, I was very curious what was the impetus for it. But I think um, you shared with us in the book itself what the impetus mm -hmm. was. It's been this sort of decade-long passion project of yours mm -hmm. um, tied to the Great Recession, as we called it, in 2008. And you mm -hmm. very aptly described the wholesale, wholesale, sorry, wholesale shift that was happening uh, within writing and, um, and, and, and how it's kind of, um, I just, I have this great note here about you spending time at the NYU library surrounded by literature and sort of thinking back about um, uh, the Great Depression and what happened with, with writers uh, at that point. So um, do I have that right? Is that really mm -hmm. what was the seed for it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, so for a few years I worked as a, as a, uh, investigative journalist for a place called uh, Judicial Reports. We'd write about the judiciary in uh, New York City. It was, a, it was a really interesting job. <laughs> Lots of great stories out of that. Um, but yeah, when the Great Recession hit, that kind of abruptly shut down. And uh, it was just a scary time. I mean, uh, New York was a scary place to be when that was happening. Um, it was expensive. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And um, I was just kind of cobbling jobs together. And so I was in the library for long periods of time because I didn't really have a home office or anything. And yeah, I was just in the library thinking about all of this and they have this great labor library within uh, NYU. So I was able to go and actually read some of these original texts from the Great Depression. And uh, it just kind of started as a curiosity thing. Um, and I would find one writer and then I would pitch a magazine or something like that and, and, and build a story around that. And, and kind of build it up. And I, I did that a few times. I wrote a piece for the Poetry Foundation. I wrote a piece for the Believer Magazine, um, the Wabash College Magazine. I, I just kind of cobbled together. I would, I would find a story of someone, how they survived the Great Depression. And I would write that up for an outlet. And before long, I had had this now a box of research of, of, of all these stories. And, and most of these writers, you just don't remember their names anymore. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I found it, I found it really comforting and it was a, as you said, it, it was a 10 year project and I just never stopped. I, I still am reading. Uh, I, I still like, you know, as we go through our problems now, I, I, I go, I, I will look up, uh, I, I did a ton. I went down a huge rabbit hole about the influenza, uh, the influenza problem epidemic of 1918, which wow. uh, influenced that generation of writers in the Great Depression, because when they were kids, they had this huge uncertainty that our own children are facing now, and then suddenly they emerged 10 years later into the Great Depression. So, uh, so I still am. I, I, I look for. I I, I don't feel like. Uh, I, I don't want to say that history repeats itself. I just feel like. Um, it's it's really interesting to read the stories of what happened to these people, how they felt, and how their lives ended up on the other side. It, to be able to see the complete story is interesting, and and I find it comforting. And it's really timely to release such a book yeah. at this moment, and it's almost better that um, you waited until now mm -hmm. because it's just so appropriate for for where we are. Um, I want to highlight this one section where um, the, which is the origin of the the title. Uh, it comes from an Aubrey Williams New York Times essay. Uh, quote: There is something better for them to do than jump off the deep end. 
which covers everything from the lawlessness to resignation, despair, and even suicide. Is this how, yeah. do you feel, the, I mean, given your peers in uh, writing, um, is this kind of the uh, sensation or the feeling, the sentiment at the moment? You know, I, I, so when I first read that quote, I actually kind of just squirreled it away. This was back in, I don't know, 2000, I don't know, so much earlier in this whole research process. I, I read that quote and I kind of held on to it, but I, didn't, I never found a place for it. And it wasn't until the COVID-19 crisis happened that I really understood like what that quote meant because I mean, yes, I, when, in 2008, when, when I didn't have work and I didn't know what to go, I, I did, I felt like I was looking at the deep end. I felt, I felt like there was something, it, it was really troubling. I didn't know how I was going to get out of it, but, um, I have been privileged enough uh, and and I've been able to cobble together a career and I've been able to keep working and I never uh, quite had to face the the profound darkness that that quote's describing but now when we're on the other side with this with the COVID-19 crisis I, I mean there's 45 million people file for unemployment like I, I feel there's so many people right now who really are experiencing the deep end, who really are seeing the the stark kind of outlines of what that quote's describing. And when he wrote that, it didn't seem like at the time there was nothing for those people and there was there was no safety net. And uh, he helped uh, serve as an administrator and helped build some of the programs that put many of those people back to work in the New Deal and uh, and and helped helped with that recovery effort and um it it really means a lot to me now that quote like because i i, I do want to say I, I i do have work now and i feel very grateful for that but i i know that so many other millions of people right now are feeling that and we just we have to acknowledge that and we have to we we, we have to like he said we have to create something for them otherwise they're going to go off the deep end and we can't let that happen to a generation yeah, absolutely. Well, and uh, it's another great segue, uh, the use of that term generation, because uh, in your chapter on Edward Newhouse and his novel, mm -hmm. You Can't Sleep Here, there's a description of the crisis generation. Yeah. Yeah, he... Uh he he was uh he was one of the very first writers that i discovered during that time and uh yeah and he just said he goes we're the crisis generation we're the people there's no certain we we've inherited this economic uncertainty and and the, we we don't know there is there are no certainties in our lives uh we we don't we don't have a future really and i think that's really important to think about um i, I <laughs> Uh, I, I feel I, I look around at I mean these people that are graduating into this environment that we're having right now. Uh, th there are no certainties for them, and and they're going to there's going to be they're gonna they're gonna have a very frustrating time, and I think there's gonna be a lot of anger and a lot of um, a feeling of impotence that that they're going to feel that 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 no other generations really had to experience because they are emerging into this. Uh, very difficult environment and um, that really does reshape the rest of your life the way you look at things and uh, 
I, I interviewed the uh, the economist Till Watcher when I was writing this book, and he's done research into the the health and well-being and the general kind of economic prospects for someone that emerges into a recession like this. Um, your all of those things, uh, your 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 overall lifetime earnings and your sense of well-being are lower than someone who emerged uh, into a better economy. Um, it just it it affects the rest of your life and. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that and to think about that. I mean, the same way that Aubrey Williams was to say, we are, these young people are emerging into a very dangerous and hard situation and we have to help them. And uh, I think that's the biggest lesson I've learned. And uh, this crisis generation, I I think at one point in the great recession, I thought that we were the crisis generation. We were the people, but I don't feel, feel like we, muddled through and, and we we've arrived at this moment and i i've been fortunate enough to have a career and stay working and the world's held together but now this this new generation that that's emerging into this post-covid economy i they're the crisis generation and we really have to help them right. uh, do you think we need another uh federal writers project um i i, I would love to see one i uh, i've spoken to a number of people along the way while writing this and uh i was was actually interviewed in an article about the the prospects for a a federal writers project and most people don't believe that it could happen anymore um and uh, i understand that i mean we are in a very polarized political moment and there's not a lot of uh there's not a lot of sympathy right now in washington for federal projects to help people get back to work and so uh the, the Federal Writers Project was part of a really, um, a really dramatic piece of legislation, the New Deal, that that created jobs for thousands and thousands of people across all industries, from construction to artists to musicians to writers. Um, and it's hard; it's very hard to imagine that happening now. However, and this is the, my biggest answer to this is, so the 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 crash happened in 1929. And then we have, uh, I think 1933, I'm gonna actually look this up really quickly, when um, Aubrey Williams wrote his piece saying, um, 1936 is when Aubrey Williams wrote that um, thing about how we're in the deep end, we have to offer them something else. So that's six, almost seven years after that crash, he wrote that. And so, you have to put yourself into that frame of mind. Like we are only a few months into this disaster that, that we're all this crisis that we're all coping with. We're only just a few months into it and it's going to last a long time. So if you imagine what we're going to be like three years from now, or even six years, like when Aubrey Williams said that it's going to be a much different environment. There's going to be, um, if, if the Great Depression is any indication, I mean, there's just going, there was people in the streets every day uh, marching for, for better jobs, for, uh, for the, uh, against the civil rights abuses that were happening. Uh, there, there were just a lot of unrest and political activism. People were marching all the time. And, and that kind of grows and grows uh, from 1929 onwards. So I, I think we're going to see more of that. And, and as that drumbeat swells, as more and more people are asking for help, as you start to see that the deep end is, is all around us, that, that's when people start to act. It wasn't until 
1935, I believe. Yeah, 1935 is when the, the Writer's Project starts. So that's six years into this disaster, well, five years into this disaster. And it's just really important to remember that, that it takes a lot of time to get something like that together. And also things get worse. And, and it, 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 they're, uh, yeah, it, our own situation, it's going to be a hard few years and we really have to think about it that way. And um, so I, I think it might be a different environment uh, a few years down the road when um, uh, after we're, we're still coping with this and trying to find solutions. So yeah. I still have hope for a federal writers project and a new deal kind of legislation to kind of uh, help, help us cross this void. Nice. No, that's great. Um, within the book, you also have this quote, um, well, I'm quoting you. Uh, My bookshelves have always been filled with underdogs. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's something uh, that, that's, that has always appealed to me. Uh, I, it was partly, um, I think, uh, so for instance, in this book, I, I wrote about, um, they're called the Raven Poetry Society. They're a group of, of poets who self-published in, uh, during the Great Depression. They put out a little magazine that they just printed themselves and they would sell it in Washington Square Park. And I found their complete collection, uh, I think it was at the New York Public Library. Um, they, they had the whole collection and I spent a couple days photocopying every single page. Like the second I touched it, I just felt this like, uh, I don't know, I, I felt like I had something that, that no one else in the world had and I felt this connection and this kinship and this thread from way back there connecting to me and I that was I, I love that feeling of, of discovery but then also connection with someone um, from so long ago and I would venture to guess that that copy that I was photocopying is probably one of 10 copies that exist anywhere in the world and uh, it's it, so yeah so I've always so it's not Nobel Prize winning literature. I'm not going to say that, but I feel this great affection for it. And I will pull it out and read poems from that collection to people whenever they'll listen. I, I, it's, I've always felt that connection. So I, yeah, I, I find a deeper connection to people like that than I do sometimes to the more celebrated writers, just because, um, I don't know. There's something more human about it. There's something I, it's easier to recognize myself in my own small life in them than it is in the giants of literature. Well, and that was going to be my question. Do you consider yourself an underdog? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think, yeah, I, I definitely would say I'm an underdog. I, I think we're a generation of underdogs, writers working today. Uh, there, it's a it's a very flooded marketplace. There's there's millions of people that are publishing right now. Um, it's it's hard to uh, to to get someone to read something new. Um, and I think also our generation with all of the analytics tools and the view counts and the like counts that you can see on social media posts, like we're more aware than any other generation of exactly how few people are reading us and, uh, <laughs> or how small your audience is. And uh, it, it, there, there's good and bad to it. I, I don't want to uh, completely disparage it, but it's, there's, uh, you, you can see what, uh, how your writing is reaching the world. And, and I think that's a little alienating sometimes. And I feel like that's one of the reasons writers have not 
formed kind of a feeling of solidarity across the country at this moment because you do feel like you're in your own little island surrounded by these little clicks and likes that you get from people rather than uh, sitting in some uh, hall together talking listening um, and, and, and now with COVID-19 it's, it's really hard for us to connect in real life so I just feel like we're each writer is kind of in their own little island and we're all underdogs because of that and um, and I think unless we connect with each other and unless we're honest about those feelings of, of inadequacy of, of being an underdog uh, I don't think it's going to change like we all have to admit and come together a little bit yeah that's yeah. Uh, nice. I, I've been reading a lot of Richard Wright um, recently um, I think uh, I would encourage everybody to to check out the work of Richard Wright um, he's he's become one of my favorite writers from that period uh, especially this year. And um, so he came to New York City right around 1935, 1936, right at that moment we were discussing when everything was darkest, everything was really hard. And um, he lived a really miserable life as a journalist. Uh, he wrote Ralph Ellison, the author of uh, The Invisible Man, he wrote him about his job. He goes, I'm working from 9 a.m. till 10 p.m. It's hard, hard grind. I can't do any work at the time I'm thinking of leaving here I don't know when uh, he said I seem to be turning my life into newspaper copy from day to day when I look to the future it looks no better and he was just writing with this he sounds miserable and it was really hard and and he was this young writer who could have just fallen off the face of the earth right there and and I feel like there's hundreds and hundreds of writers like him right now who who, who we could lose forever because there is no economic support system for them. And uh, so he wrote that, right? And within a year later was accepted into the Federal Writers Program in New York City. And he was given a, a job. He wrote, uh, he wrote an essay about uh, a portrait of Harlem for one of the FWP projects. It's great. It's this really great portrait of what Harlem was like at the time. And uh, so he was given that work, but they also gave him kind of the freedom and the luxury to work on his own projects. Mm -hmm. And during that time, he was able to work on um, Native Son, which I believe is one of the, it, it's, it's a great work of literature, probably one of the most important books of the 20th century. And it's so relevant now. He, everything that he expressed in that book is so alive right now. And it's, and it's really important to, to read that. And that book, I really don't know if that book could have happened if that same miserable writer who couldn't hold it together, if he hadn't been given just a little bit of extra time and support from the FWP, I don't know if Native Son would have happened. And that makes me really sad. And I, I, I hope that we're not losing the next generation of, of work. Yeah. Oh, so well said. And uh, that's a great recommendation. I'm eager now to read it myself. Well, Jason, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, your time. Well, thank you. And I, I want to say it's a real honor. And I, I really appreciate how Achieve focuses so hard on, on, on the whole story of someone's life, because it's so easy to just look at the successful part of somebody's life and just talk about that piece. And, and, and that's kind of the American way to kind of pretend like you just magically end up there. But it's not until you see the whole story that, that, that it really comes together. And I think it's so important that work you're doing.
I really appreciate that, Jason. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.